here we are again, <laughs> carrying on our uh, sermons in the Philippians. About two years ago, Sue and I had a great vacation. We went to the United Kingdom for almost four weeks. It was great. Four weeks of fun. Uh, our original plan, though, when we started dreaming about going there, was to do one of those walking tours where you walk along the, the footpaths that are, are all across, crisscross England everywhere. And you can walk oh, 15, 20 kilometers between any little town and you can find a place to stay. That was our first plan. We actually ended up doing a bus tour, <laughs> two bus tours. We still ended up actually doing a lot of walking in that though, be, you know, walking around some of these wonderful sites. But before we decided, before we went, we decided to get into a little bit better shape for it. And so we started walking really for, for our holiday, but we've actually kept the habit for exercise and for weight control and for getting into some kind of decent aerobic condition. We still try to walk together three times a week. Now, all our local walks start on what is called the Discovery Trail, which runs through Abbotsford. Uh, can you unmute my my uh, vocal mic. Uh, well, no, we'll just give us 20 seconds to wait and then we may start over. Hmm? Yeah, let's go back to the start. Is it good now? Okay, sorry. Uh, we threw, threw the sound guys a curve because I'm not using my headset and uh, he'd already turned off all of our vocal mics, so here we are. Uh, two years ago, Sue and I had a great vacation in, in the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, and Wales. And uh, our original plan was to do a walking tour on all these footpaths that lead between all these little towns. And we didn't actually end up doing that. We ended up going on two, two bus tours, but we still did a lot of walking around these historic sites. But before we decided to go, we got into shape. We started walking here. And uh, we started out, we wanted to be in decent condition and not worn out by our holiday. And uh, we've carried that habit on. We still do it three times a week. All of our walks here in, Ab in Abbotsford start with the Discovery Trail, which runs just, just outside our, the, uh, the street that our, our townhouse is on. Runs all the way through Abbotsford. And, and our section of it starts actually on what's called the, Haz it's the Hazelwood Cemetery. And uh, we go through that, and then we head up the hill. Uh, we share that path. It's a nice paved path that leads up to a street called Elmwood. We share it uh, with lots of wild rabbits. They're little, they're little cottontails, wascally little rabbits. They're everywhere, and they multiply like rabbits. That's what they do, because it's a pretty cool place to live. You know, we don't usually get snow like you see outside today, and we have flowers starting to come up at the end of January sometimes. Anyway, uh, when you see these little guys on the path, and they see you coming, they start darting off in all sorts of directions. They zig and they zag, and they just run every which way, which is probably a pretty good strategy if your main predator is a hawk. And there are Cooper's hawks all over the place in our part of Abbotsford. You can hear them calling. And we say, run, bunny, run. <laughs> uh, but rabbit trails really aren't trails. 
they're just, they're just all over the place. They're mixed up. They, they start one place and they end somewhere else, and they hardly ever come back to the, the same spot. Now, most of you know, <laughs> and I was already reminded of it today, <laughs> that uh, I am very fond of verbal rabbit trails. I, I, I say something, and it thinks, I make the think of something else, and it ends up taking me off topic, which brings me to our sermon today. It's sort of an excursion for Paul. He, he's going to take today, he took a little rabbit trail at the tail end of last week. He began Philippians chapter 2 by appealing to them to get along better, to be like-minded, and have, have the same kind of love for each other, and be one in spirit and of one mind. That's verse 2, unselfish action. And then he gave them the supreme example of that, the example of Jesus himself. And he said, you, sh you, you should be like Jesus, who didn't worry about being equal with God, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and found in human flesh. And that's a great example. Now, Paul does what rabbits don't. He's going to return to the spot that he left off at verse 4 before he gave us this illustration of Jesus. And he's going to do it, and he's talking about giving us more instructions today on how we can serve with joy, how, can we serve, how we can serve joyfully in a way that reflects who we are in Christ, children of God. So if you haven't already, please turn to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read uh, from there. We're going to do our reading in two parts this morning. Uh, the first is verses 12 to 18. Let's read that. Okay. So this is just after the example of Jesus. He says, do everything without grumbling. That's the header in the New International. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. I went too far. No, I didn't. No, that's right. We're going to 18. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Yeah. So we're talking about joyful service this morning. The Philippians, we mentioned last week, the Philippians had come down with a virus. And we know nothing about viruses right now, do we? No. They had come down with a virus. They were spiritually sick. And they had formed bad patterns of behavior. And they need to take steps to get back to health and to restore the unity in their congregation. And that's what Paul has in mind as he, as he says these things to them. 
Now, you know, most times, if you look at that first verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Most times when we read this, we think about it as being instruction directly to us. And, and it certainly is. It is. But one thing, one thing is different. The you and yours in there is a plural word in the original language. Continue to work out your salvation, your church, with fear and trembling. Paul is speaking to the, to the whole church. He's, he's not speaking to individuals. And what he's saying is corporate action is needed here. And they have to work together as a group if they're going to restore true community. And their church is sick. Well, what are the symptoms of this spiritual sickness? He's talked about them already in the first part of this chapter. Selfishness, dissension, arguing. All those behaviors that demonstrate inner attitudes that Paul has so eloquently called them on. He's saying, hey, I'm going to name them, people. This is what you're doing. He's really saying, all of you need to work this out together. Of course, the statement does apply to each of us because all the parts have to be healthy for the whole body to be healthy, don't they? So nobody gets a pass. Everyone, each person, has to examine their own heart. I imagine them saying, well, Dr. Paul, how bad is it? Am I going to pull through? Am I going to make it? And he says, yes, you will. In fact, he says, God has given you exactly what you need to get better. Because he says, for God is the one who works in us to will and to act for his purposes. Wow. So once again, in the instructions here, it isn't about me. It's about us. Work out your salvation. Now, Paul is speaking to believers here. He's speaking to Christians. They've been saved by faith, by grace, through faith. Their relationship with the Lord isn't in doubt here. And that's the same for us. Our salvation from start to finish is the work of God. We know that we're not saved by working at it. And Jesus said that. He said, if it did, you'd boast. You'd think you had done it. You'd be filled with pride. You didn't. Start to finish, it's a work of God. He works in each of us, each of them, and he gives them and us the ability to live a Christ-honoring life. And Paul is saying we should work out what God has worked in us. We should work out what God has worked in us because we are being transformed by his presence, by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it doesn't happen automatically, does it? Um, we really do need to live in a different way to the way we lived before we knew the Lord. And why should we be working out our salvation? Because as Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, he said, I have plans for you. I prepared in advance works, things for you to do. That's why I brought you to myself. God works in us so that he can work through us. 
But isn't that an interesting phrase, fear and trembling? And the first thing that comes to my mind would be being conscious of the Lord's presence. I think we'd have some fear and trembling. But that isn't actually what he's getting at here. In this context, he's talking about having a healthy respect and reverence for each other. To, we have no reason to fear and tremble before the Lord Jesus now, like those who don't know him. But Paul is talking here about restoring community to this community and treating each other well and honoring each other and respecting each other. Uh, verses 14 and 15 contrast our new life with those, the life of those who have not yet trusted Jesus. And what he says here, he says, don't grumble and argue. <laughs> Do everything without grumbling and arguing. And you're going, everything? Yes. Oh. Something tells me I'm not going to learn this in five minutes. Grumbling and arguing, just, just for the record, grumbling and arguing are not part of our new nature. Uh, there is no spiritual gift of bickering. There's no spiritual gift of complaining. There's no spiritual gift of inviting. That's our humanness coming back. And we need to get rid of those patterns of behavior. And, you know, I really wish, I really wish they had all gone away when I first received Jesus. But they didn't. They didn't. I, I be, but the good news is that as I work out my new life in Christ, as I walk with Jesus, I start slowly to become more and more like him. The process, there's a word for it here, a theological word is sanctification. That we grow more and more like Jesus as we learn about him, as we walk with him, as we listen to him, instead of incessantly just always sending our requests up to listen to him, to learn about him. The goal, Paul says, is that we could become blameless and pure without fault. And what he means by that is that people will see the change. People will know we are children of God by what we do, not what we say. They're going to see that there's a world of difference between the children of God and those who don't know him. And it's shown in the way we live. And he, and he says, this is critical. You have to do this. Because, New International says, we live in a warped and crooked generation. I, I wanted to find out what the other new translation says, so I went through New King James, New Living Translation. I went to the old King James, and I went to a number of others. Most of them translate this phrase, crooked and perverse. They don't water it down. The message paraphrase says we live in a squalid and polluted society. I won't answer I won't add anything to that. Grumbling is complaining under your breath. It's probably one of the sins that's most tolerated by us as Christians. Uh, in fact, I don't many of us don't even think about it sinful because so many of us do it. But the thing is, it is directly disobeying a command of God. He says, don't grumble. And God is offended by it. 
Why does God hate it so much? Well, just a second. Because it shows a, a, a lack of humility on our part. You remember verse 8. Jesus, who being in ver very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That's 6. Took on the very nature of a servant. Verse 7. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Verse 8. And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, came to earth to die for our sin, humbled himself, left the glory of heaven to become a man. When we, dis when we grumble, we are not displaying humility. It's the opposite. We're acting as if we deserve better, when in reality, we, deserves, we deserve much worse. And that attitude is offensive to God. But he says, don't avoid grumbling. Don't just avoid grumbling, but also avoid arguing. And I think this word is talking about the way we feel when we're upset with God for allowing circumstances in our lives. Why me, Lord? I'm trying to follow you. What are you, what are you doing this for? And we question him, or we second-guess him, or we feel that God isn't being fair. And, and that takes a little courage to admit that sometimes we think God isn't being fair. doesn't say that's right, but that's the way we sometimes think. We dispute with him. We argue with him about how we don't deserve it. And, and that can sometimes lead to bitterness of spirit. Bitterness. We reject the theology that says God is sovereign and God is providential. If we become bitter and believe that we know something better. In New International has a footnote here in the, on the page, and the reference that Paul is, is thinking of here is actually found in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. And that's God speaking about those who don't learn his ways, who don't follow him. But in contrast to them, Paul says, and God also says in that verse, we will shine among them like the stars of heaven as we hold firmly to the word of life, the word of God. That contrast is sharp because as his followers, we measure our lives by God's word, which is the perfect standard. The gospel is the word that brings spiritual life to us. To hold fast means to give all our attention to it. Even after we're saved. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Even after we're saved, we have to preach the gospel to ourselves over and again. We have to remember what we have been saved from and how. And we have to let that stay in our minds and guide us and direct us and, and, and shape our thoughts. We need to remind ourselves of that because we need to preach the gospel. And we've been saved. And we're different to the way we used to be. But there is a ton of darkness in this world. But God's people can shine like bright lights into it if we are growing and we're learning and we're applying the truth that we're reading. We follow Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life in this imperfect world. We're never going to do that. We cannot achieve perfection on this side of eternity. 
but we can reflect more and more of Jesus as we honor the Lord with our lives. Now notice something else that's al it's almost tacked onto that sentence here. Paul says, we are not to retreat from the world, but to shine the light of Christ in our world. If we take ourselves out of, out of the neighborhood, how will people hear the good news? How will they see the transformation that, that Jesus brings when he comes to live and dwell in us? How will they see that? God could have taken us to heaven at the moment he saved us, but he left us here so that we could be an influence to do those things that he prepared in advance for us to do. And he's left us here to be salt and light. Salt preserves, light allows you to see in a corrupt and dark world. So what he's saying is, and you've probably heard this before, we have to be in the world without the world being in us. In other words, who, who's, steering, who's steering your ship? Who's steering your boat? You or him? Boat has to be in, <laughs> we need to be in the world without the world being in us. If you think about the boat analogy a little, you have to have the boat in the water, but not the water in the boat. That's a different problem. And you'll be doing a lot of time bailing just to stay on the surface. Yeah. Now, Paul gives them one more reason to shine. And it's this. He's under house arrest in Rome. He, he's, uh, as he's writing this letter, he does not know exactly how it's going to end. He might be released, which as we find out later, he did happen. But he also might simply be put to death. And he's beginning to think about that. And as his thoughts go to that, they go to him standing before God in the day of the Lord, the day when God will bring everything to completion, will judge each person. And he says, I'm hoping I'm going to see you there, Philippians. That will keep me going if I see you there. Now, Paul saw his whole life as a sacrifice in the interest of seeing spiritual fruit in the lives of the Philippian believers and others. He wasn't bitter about being under arrest. He, and this isn't the first time he's been singing hymns of joy while he's been in prison in chains. He's, he's, he, he isn't bitter. He's filled with joy. He says he's willing to not only to endure the present things he's going through, but also to lay down his life if he has to. And the prospect of being with Jesus and knowing his ministry to the Philippians was successful fills him with joy. And he adds, should fill you with joy too. So Paul has talked about what it's like to serve in humility. He gave us the example of Jesus. And he said, in, in the way you conduct yourself on earth, imitate him. He gave himself as an example also of joyful service, willing to go to prison or even lose his life if it advanced the gospel. Now, if I was in the church at Philippi, 
while this letter was being read out, which is how they would have learned this teaching, it was verbal, I think, I think doubt would have entered my mind. I think I'd be tempted to say something like, well, sure, Jesus and Paul can do it, but, but can I? I mean, Jesus was the son of God, and Paul was, was trained theologically, and he was chosen to be an apostle, and the Lord Jesus spoke directly to him about his mission. I'm just an average guy in the second row from the back. What can I do? Can I be like them? I don't know if I can. I can't. But I'd be wrong, of course, if I said that, because Paul wasn't some superhuman guy. Paul, in chapter 4, tells us how he accomplished everything. So he said, and he says, we'll get there in a couple of weeks, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things. Let's, let's read the rest of chapter 2. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think... It is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my brother, my co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my, my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, and he almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now, examples. Guys like me, it might be the reason that Paul gave us these two examples of ordina ordinary saints, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, Paul had met Timothy on his first mission, his first missionary journey, and he uh, recruited him. Mis Timothy was a believer. He became a believer, and so did his mother and his grandmother. And Paul recruited him to be one of the co-laborers with him on his second journey. The first journey, he had a young man named John Mark, but he got into a real disagreement with, his, with Barnabas, who was also on it. Sharp disagreement. They parted company. Mark went back to Jerusalem. But here's another young man he can mentor and bring along. So he does. He thought of him, and he thinks of him, describes him as a dearly loved son. Timothy had a servant's heart. He, really, he genuinely cared for, the other for others. And he had learned that serving in his own church. And s Paul saw that and it asked him to come along with him. He also learned it, and he learned more under Paul's mentoring. Acts 16, 2, 
Um, if you just write that down and have a look at it, it says the believers at Lystra and Iconium. He was in the church at Lystra. They spoke well of Timothy. And that's when, where Paul recruited him. Spending time with Paul, he really grew in his faith. And, and Timothy actually later would become uh, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Yeah. But Timothy also knew the meaning of sacrifice and service. Timothy cared for others. But Jesus was in first place in his life. And he proved that as he served with Paul in the work of the gospel. So that's the first example. The second, we don't know very much more about this fellow except what's written here. It was a common name, Epaphroditus. It was a, a male form of a word, the word Epaphro, uh, Aphrodite, hmm. part of the Greek pantheon. So his family were not believers. Epaphroditus was on loan from the Philippian church. He'd been sent to, to Paul with an offering to help take care of Paul's needs while he was under house arrest. But the thing is, Epaphroditus didn't just take the offering there and leave. He was part of the offering. He joined the team. And Paul couldn't say enough good things about him. He said he called him a brother. And that was Paul's favorite term for a follower of Jesus, someone with whom he could have the fellowship, the koinonia, that produced by the Holy Spirit between believers. He also said he was a co-worker because he was taking the gospel to people who hadn't heard it yet. And he, he also called him a fellow soldier. Uh, as part of basic training, soldiers basically, uh, they go through a lot of drills, and the point of the training is to get them to where they will automatically do what is ordered. They will not leave. They will not abandon it. He knew what it was like to share in the dangers of standing up for Jesus and of proclaiming the gospel. And Paul said he was gladly willing to risk his life to serve with Paul. Wow. But Epaphroditus, and this tells you how, how human he was and how ordinary he was, he was homesick for his church. And he was distressed that they were distressed about him, about him that he'd almost died. And he'd been a blessing to Paul, but he was also a blessing to his own church, or he wouldn't have been trusted. So Paul sends him home to encourage the church, and he encourages the church to honor him and to welcome him with great joy. So both of these guys, ordinary guys, they ended up doing extraordinary things. In fact, all three of the characters, the main characters today, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, embody the principles that he's talking about. Examples, fitting examples of joyful service. Well, how about us? Are we humbly working out our salvation? Are we working together in humility for the glory of God and in the power of God. That's when we will see fruit. This is our challenge here. This is our challenge. No grumbling or arguing. My hope is that others will see the gospel being lived out when they look at us. And they'll do that if we hold firmly to the word of life. As we represent 
the light of the world, Jesus. So let's shine bright for him and serve him joyfully. Let's pray. Uh, tough challenge, Lord, because it makes us look at who we are and who we are in private and who we are when we're not around our church friends and who we are when we get into a heated conversation with one of our brothers or sisters and who we are, Lord, when we lose it and don't allow you to control but revert to old patterns of behavior. Lord, cleanse us from those things. Cleanse us once again that we could be light that shines brightly into a very dark, very troubled, very needy world. And Lord, I pray you'd give us the joy. It marvels us, it makes us marvel when we hear of Paul in chains singing hymns at midnight or hear of Paul being confined to a house rejoicing because he knows the gospel is going forward and people are coming to him and hearing it. I want us to be that, Lord. I want me to be that way too. So take these things. Lead us back to the cross, which reminds us that we belong to you, that we may do your will. In your name, Jesus, we pray and ask. Amen.